Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Today on the show, we'll hear about a pair of legislative bills intended to address a $400 million shortfall in education funding. The question is whether either will pass. We will leave this session with, with something, and it will be something that will move us forward. If we do nothing, we've done a big disservice to the state. If President Trump's travel ban sticks, it will have a major impact on some of the University of Wyoming's international student studies and personal lives. For example, my fiance, she is in Iran. She wanted to come here for continuing the study and being together, but it's not possible anymore. And Wyoming's transportation director went to Capitol Hill to ask for more highway funds. Plus conversation about wage gap legislation and education issues. Join us for Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming. uwyo.edu slash haub. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. A downturn in the energy economy has caused a crisis in Wyoming education funding. K-12 through funding is projected to see a $400 million shortfall at the end of the current two-year budget cycle. That deficit will grow if lawmakers can't find a way to address the shortfall. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that the House and Senate are taking different approaches towards solving the problem. I don't think we can cut our way out of this problem or tax our way out. That's Senate Education Chairman Hank Coe of Cody. Coe is serving his 29th year in the Senate and was among those who voted to create the current school funding model. He was also a big supporter of adding money into education when economic times were good. These days, Coe is singing a different tune and says they have no other choice but to cut K-12 education funding. But he's not overly thrilled with that task. I want to maintain the quality of education that I think we've funded well over the years and get the most bang for our buck. So, yeah, it's a little painful for me. Senator Jeff Wasserberger of Gillette is a longtime teacher and current school administrator. He also worked to create the initial school funding model. Wasserberger says test scores and graduation rates have all been going up. He adds that it's brutal to have to remove funding at a time when education in the state is as good as it's ever been. It's like this thoroughbred horse that we have created that's just about ready to win the Kentucky Derby. And then right before the finish line, we're going to pull back on the reins so hard on that horse that it flips over backwards. Senator Bill Landon of Casper is the sponsor of the recently approved Senate bill that's hoping to remove roughly $60 million from education funding up front. It freezes special education and transportation costs and some other reductions. It also creates a committee that will go into the school funding model and recalibrate it. That's a fancy way of saying that they will tweak the funding model so that districts get less money. We've got to try to do some things that stay as far away from the classroom as we can, and that's in general what we've been trying to do. But Senator Chris Rothfuss worries that if lawmakers go into the funding model to look for savings, that they will, in fact, impact the classroom. That if we go into recalibration during a budget downturn, 
that we may eviscerate the model and we, we may not like what we end up with. The Senate is not allowed to propose revenue-raising measures. Senate President Eli Bebout says that's fine with him. Bebout adds that tax increases do not interest him in the least. I don't think the answer is to run taxes and raise taxes right now. Let's have a real serious look at reductions, how we can do better with less. This is despite the fact that educators have been calling for tax increases to address the shortfall. The House is approaching the deficit differently. They have passed out a comprehensive bill that also has some freezes and budget cuts, but as Green River Representative John Freeman points out, it tackles the deficit more broadly. One of the things that I like about it is is that there's revenue in there and there's refocusing of funding streams so that education will have uh, some money to, to fill the financial hole that we find ourselves in. The House bill would raise a temporary half-cent sales tax as soon as the budget reserve account dips below $500 million. That's about a billion dollars from now. That turned out to be a compromise after the House deleted all revenue from the bill and then turned around and restored the half-percent hike after a closed-door caucus. Some senators predict that the House and Senate bills will probably be melded together. But Speaker of the House Steve Harshman makes it clear that he believes the House bill is superior legislation. The one thing we've given them is something they have not given us, and that is a comprehensive solution. We solve the problem. Uh, They push it off on future legislators. Behind the scenes, some are wondering if the Senate will kill the House bill, and then the House will defeat the Senate measure. Senate President Eli Bebout smiles and says that's a legitimate concern, but he doubts that will happen. We will leave this session with with something, and it will be something that will move us forward. If we do nothing, we've done a big disservice to the state. But Gillette Senator Jeff Wasserberger gently disagrees. He says even if legislation fails, they still have time to take more input and handle the shortfall properly. I think everybody needs to take a deep breath, slow down, realize that we are completely funded for this year and for next year. This is strictly talking about the biennium of 2019-2020. The reason the current funding model was developed in the first place was due to the fact that the state lost a lawsuit over equity in school funding. Wasserberger says if lawmakers don't take their time, they may lose another school funding lawsuit. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. The state's budget deficit has forced the University of Wyoming to reduce spending. Dr. Ann Alexander, Associate Vice President for Undergraduate Education, says at this point, every possible thing that's discretionary has been cut. But there are folks on campus who think energy conservation should have a more prominent role in cost-saving measures. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson spoke with Megan Cranford, student chair of the Sustainability Coalition, about the effort. We're talking about budget cuts right now at the university, and you have some pretty interesting ideas about ways to conserve and not spend as much. Yeah, I have joined with a couple of other students to spearhead a group on campus called the Sustainability Coalition. Part of that includes conservation and efficiency projects at the university, and these aren't new ideas. They're ones that have worked on campuses across the U.S. and have helped campuses save thousands to millions of dollars just through like energy conservation projects. Do you think that, that these conversations about budget cuts, has that helped you start this conversation more? I think people are definitely interested in ways to save money and 
um, sustainability or conservation, whatever word you want to use, those kinds of efforts really have potential to save money without like cutting jobs or cutting resources. And I think that it's a really good approach and the university should really consider how they can dive into that. So part of the responsibility in energy conservation falls on the students themselves. What does it look like to get the buy-in of your fellow students? I think behavior change is like really, really hard to accomplish, especially on a large scale, because it's like, how do you best educate students? And is that through like flyers or social media or like, you know, trying to teach them at their homes in their everyday lives? And so we think that the responsibility also should fall on the institution to look at like how they can be more efficient in their operations, including timing on lights and how long we leave electronics going and what kind of fuel we're using to power all the operations. What seem like the biggest barriers? I mean, given the fact that other schools are already deploying these strategies and they're saving money, why not do it? Yeah, that's a really good question and one that we struggle with and that we still don't really know the answer to. We think that... um, A lot of times it seems like the University of Wyoming is kind of stuck in their ways. And sometimes those ways are 20 years behind other institutions. And we think that especially Wyoming, which is a leader in energy production, should also be guiding conservation and efficiency projects and have the capabilities of doing that. A lot of other campuses have a sustainability coordinator and sustainability offices, and those Uh, positions work directly on these types of issues and we don't have someone on this campus currently doing that and so especially now with budget cuts when people are already strapped to do the jobs that they were hired to do adding these like extra projects is a lot to ask but we think that like bringing in a person or an office of people to tackle these issues could save the university a lot of money. How common is it for schools to have offices like that? very, very common. Like all of our surrounding institutions have one. Even the university where President Nichols just came from has a sustainability coordinator and sustainability intern, so students working on the, on these projects. And this university, its administration is in the midst of conversations about how to save money. Are there specific things that you're asking for that you're pushing for? We have been asking specifically for a sustainability coordinator and sustainability office. We're also encouraging the Conservation and Efficiency Revolving Fund, or the SURF, which is already instituted on this campus. So that's where people can take um, project ideas related to conservation and efficiency, and um, they propose them. And then within operations, money is provided to see those projects through. And part of the requirements for those projects are that um, eventually they'll save money LED lighting operations, for instance, um, there's like the initial cost to install them, but after a while you end up saving energy and money. And so those money savings would go back into this pool called the SURF in order to fund future projects. And we really want to push the university to like invest more time and energy into allowing people to propose projects to make that happen. And you said before that this university is behind. Do you have ideas about why I think people think that like there's already a lot of push to put fossil fuels out of the energy industry and especially being in Wyoming people don't want to step on the toes of like their family and their friends and the communities that they grew up in that are heavily supported by these fossil fuel industries but I mean I'm from Wyoming and I care about 
energy industry and jobs and the people in this state. And I have a lot of Wyoming pride. And so it's not trying to put people out of business. It's just trying to be more responsible and have the stewardship and cowboy ethics that we claim to have. And it doesn't need to be political. I think it's just a way of taking care of each other. So as someone from Wyoming who's really passionate about these issues, what do you see as your future in this state? As a young person studying energy, I want to be part of the energy future, and I see that moving towards renewables, and that's not happening in this state. And so I don't see my future calling me to stay here. But if we became a leader in renewable energies, I would love to stay in a place like this and be part of that transition and have Wyoming continue to be a leader in the energy industry. That was Megan Cranford, student chair of the University of Wyoming Sustainability Coalition. To see her group in action, check out the Cowboys versus New Mexico on February 25th, which will be a zero-waste basketball game. When we come back, we'll have conversations about the wage gap and the Board of Education. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. State Representatives Marty Halverson and Kathy Connolly are unlikely allies. Halverson has been a supporter of religious right bills in the past, while Connolly is the state's only openly gay lawmaker. But there is one thing they do agree on, the need for an in-depth study of Wyoming's gender wage gap, which reports say is the worst in the nation. As part of our new series called I Respectfully Disagree, I sat down with both of them to hear how they came to co-sponsor a bill. Representative Connolly explained she knew she had to do something when yet another report came out proclaiming Wyoming as the worst gender wage gap in the U.S. And it happened right before session started. And so people like you will come and say, what do you think? And I will say, right, we have the worst wage gap in the nation and we need to do something about it. Right. And then you will have the, the same news reporter will go interview Representative Halverson, who will say, this is bulwarky. Right. It is all about <laughs> it's all you know, this is a distortion of information. It's all about choice. And so we are often pitted against each other. Right. And so when I thought about it, I said, who better to ask to be the co-sponsor on this bill than Representative Halverson? And so that's when I sat down and said, Marty, do I have a bill for you? <laughs> and you're, and you're, you're nodding your head in, in, in agreement that, that it, there is this, this sense of you're being asked separately to kind of give your point of view, and, and there's never this working together. And so your response to, to her coming to you with this bill was? Elation. Absolute elation. Kathy had the greatest idea. I, I couldn't get my name on the bill fast enough. And sure enough, I think the merit of the idea, first of all, and then the strength of the co-sponsorship got it right through the house, no problem. And so what we want to do is dispel the fact that we are at odds on this and we have one goal in mind, to get the data. I think of the family in California. The husband has a job offer in Wyoming. The wife is doing her due diligence and runs across the headline, Wyoming Worst for Women. What is that woman thinking? 
And we want her to be able to look at that and say, oh, I have as much opportunity here in Wyoming as my husband does. We agree that we think of it as an economic development issue. You know, I too do not want that headline. I want it because we, we change. You know, Marty wants it because there is kind of data that can explain that, that differently. But we need the good data. Absolutely. I, I see two possible outcomes of this study. The legislature really needs to step up and stop wage discrimination. Or there's another headline that says, we were wrong about Wyoming women. Let's just keep, <laughs> She's got a new headline. <laughs> keep the W alliteration going and and just set some send something out there that says, boy, were we wrong. Yeah. Where, where has the disagreement been necessarily? Sometimes I think it's hard for people to recognize that here in Wyoming, we really work hard on our committees and on our issues, and we really attempt to do it in a way that's best for the state. And so knowing that, I knew that I could go to Marty and even teasingly say, do I have a bill for you? So you say teasingly. Why, why do you say teasingly? Oh, because because of the fact that we are put in the newspaper as diametrically opposed when it comes to this issue. Me saying this is an important issue. The wage gap is an important issue. Representative Halverson saying this is not an important issue. Right? This is left-wing, East Coast crazy media, right, portraying us poorly. And, and- and when she came, I laughed. Okay. I took one look at the title and I said, absolutely. Right. And we, we laughed about it. We worked on it. Yeah. And I wasn't confident that Representative Halverson would sign on to it. I, I wasn't confident of it. But I knew, given our relationship, that I could go over and sit down and teasingly say, do I have a bill for you? And she might have taken it and swatted it at me, right? She could have, <laughs> or taken her pen right away and signed her name on it. It could have gone in, in lots of different directions. But it, it sounds like what you're saying is that there's this perception when you read the paper yes. or listen to the radio, uh, yeah, that there's there's not a lot of conversation going mm-hmm. on and that any conversation is very uh, divisive and, and not necessarily yeah. productive. You're saying that's not necessarily no, the case. No, and in fact, just the, I think just the opposite. So that in the paper, you, you get um, almost anger. Um, I'd like to you know, say that, in fact, going to Representative Halverson on the, you know, the, opposite, the opposite side, honestly, was the best way, honestly, to move the state forward. Because our goal is to resolve the issue. That is our goal. Kathy and I are working on our next steps as regards getting it through the Senate. And uh, stay tuned. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you, Melody. That was State Representatives Kathy Connolly and Marty Halverson discussing House Bill 209 as part of our new series on civil discourse. If you have a conversation you'd like to share, let us know. The Wyoming State Board of Education was born 100 years ago during the 1917 legislative session. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson invited Pete Gosar to reflect on the history of the board and his final months as the board chair. 
appointees only get to serve one term. And Gosar says that's part of what makes the State Board of Education an effective institution. I think it's a really uh, interesting way to do it. And, uh, and I think it removes uh, maybe some of the ideology and the partisanship and the electioneering that, that sometimes interferes. Um, you have one six-year term um, and you should focus on education and policy and, and not worry about the rest. And so I think that that's a, a really important point uh, uh, that's not very well understood about members of the State Board. I looked at the original legislation that established the board. One of the things that I saw that, you know, is there from the beginning and has lasted is there's a a mandate that there have to be representatives from both the Republican and Democratic parties. How has that been important? Well, I think it's really important in um, maybe these days that seem a bit uh, partisan um, and maybe hyper-partisan to sit down with somebody that comes from a, a perspective that's different than yours and have to work towards a, a common solution. I think that's been the great strength of uh, Wyoming politics and maybe American politics, quite honestly, is is to find workable solutions. And I think the state board allows people to sit down with varied perspectives and say, you know, education policy, like many other policies, is not as cut and dry as many would assume. And so if you come at it from different angles, well, hopefully, um, you'll come to a, a better uh, and more sweeping solution that most people uh, can live with. And, and I think that, uh, I, ho- I hope that never changes about the state board. At its founding in 1917, was the goal to ensure uh, equality in education across the state of Wyoming? You know, I think it was. I think it, it was to set some sort of standards um, for education in Wyoming. There seemed to be unevenness. You know, we needed to have some sort of standard operation. I, I think when the state board was created, they set about making sure that teachers were certified and that the, the conditions were sanitary was the word they used um, in those days. And, and so I think they said, well, you know, everybody has a right to have at least a minimum base of, of expectations for their education. And whether it's in a larger town like Cheyenne or if it's a smaller place like where I grew up in Pinedale, there should be a minimum level that, that we expect from the education. How do you even create a standard, given that every place is so different in their access to resources and their culture? Well, I think it's it's why the board is represented uh, geographically and, and diversely with party and then also with different entities in education. We have a school board member or two on our board. We have a, a teacher. We have an administrator. And, and you, you take uh, you know their, their expertise and you say, how can you we do this, right? We In Pinedale, where I grew up, we had 200 kids in the high school. It's hard to imagine that you could have a German and a French class. Those barriers are starting to break down, however, with, with virtual learning and, and some of the online uh, academies that allow a, a place like Pinedale to be able to offer um, an MIT course, for instance. And so those are the opportunities that exist. But truly, you do have to say, you know, with the economy of scale, it's going to be a little less expensive to educate somebody in Cheyenne than it is intensely. And you try to make that as fair as you can. And you keep working to get it perfect. I, I don't think you'll ever get it perfect. But if you keep working that way, um, you'll have an opportunity to ensure that, that, uh, that an education foundation is available for everyone. Do you have a sense of, of how its founding impacted education in the state? Well, it seems, uh, as I read uh, some of the historical uh, documents, that the State Board of Education came um, in a very tumultuous time in Wyoming policy and, and education in general. And in fact, uh, it was commissioned because of a report that was released about education in Wyoming. And they said it, it seemed like they needed a stabilizing force. And I think that's always been kind of the 
the theme of the state board. And I think it repeats itself throughout history. Not too many years ago uh, during our tenure, we were that stabilizing force. I think that as the politics waxes and wanes around education, it's more or less uh, necessary. But it's nice to have people committed to just education. I often hear people think, well, the, the state board should be elected. And I can understand that view. But I think in the end, I prefer this system. You have one term. You're not interested in in doing things to get you reelected. There's not a continual campaign that wears people out. And I think in many places doesn't do any service to its entity. And so I think that this board, and I would just welcome anybody to sit in on our meetings um, and try to pick out who belongs to what party. I think it would be extremely difficult for people. Many of our decisions are eight two or or twelve zero. Um, and I, I think it's remarkable to see that happening in a time when um, on at least on the national level, it doesn't happen very often. And I think the state board is more functional because of it. And so I think overall the state board was created to add some stabilizing influence to Wyoming education. I think it also adds, because of its varied diversity of where people live and what they do for work, I think that it gives a lot of uh, many different perspectives. What about the inclusion of student voices? Well, that's a really interesting question. Having a student representative on the board, that would be brand new for the state board. And the logistics of it all are interesting, but can be worked out. I think that there's a lot of insight that could be gained um, from having a student on the board. I I think going forward, we're going to talk about it at the state board and say, how do we get a student or students to be a part of this board and feel empowered to say, you know what, this is the impact it has to your customers. And, And I think anytime you stop listening to your customers or you don't ask them their opinion, I think you miss out. And so perhaps that's what the next 100 years of the state board looks like. There'll be more student involvement. I think so. There'll be a Many things changing. Uh, I think, as you see, the the world shrinking. The state board is is going to need to continue to innovate. We're going to continue to have to reach out beyond Wyoming and say where are we headed, and let's get there first. For more on the history of this Wyoming State Board of Education, go to WyomingPublicMedia.org. And when we come back, Wyoming may finally have an in when it comes to getting more federal highway money. And some UW International students are closely following attempts at a travel ban. This is Open Spaces. Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming's junior senator, John Barrasso, is now chairman of the committee tasked with crafting President Donald Trump's call for a massive infrastructure proposal. Trump wants to rebuild roads, bridges, railways, and airports across the country. Now, this could be good news for a lot of Wyoming drivers, but correspondent Matt Laszlo reports that Barrasso is being pulled in a thousand different directions. Senator Barrasso is known as a penny-pinching conservative, but when it comes to transportation, he thinks Washington has been the one pinching Wyoming pennies. Well, Washington has been running behind, and they've been putting the responsibility uh, on the states. That works in a number of locations. When you take a look at the size of Wyoming and the number of miles of roads 
the distance between places and the number of people that live in Wyoming, it's not reasonable to expect the people of Wyoming to pay for all of the, the work on the roads. Wyoming Department of Transportation Director Bill Panos told the committee that Wyoming's highways, especially the interstates, are in need of repair. He says tourism plays a big part in that. Our highways enable tens of millions of visitors each year to reach scenic wonders like Yellowstone National Park and Mount Rushmore. So those highways ensure that tourism dollars are spent in America, furthering national economic goals. So there is a national interest and plenty of good reasons for the nation to invest in surface transportation in rural states. Panos also explained that much of the wear and tear on Wyoming's roads and bridges is also due to all the big rigs that traverse the state. Highways in our rural states enable truck movements between the West Coast and the large cities of the Midwest and the East. They benefit people and commerce at both ends of the journey. Our highways enable significant agricultural, energy, and natural resource products to move from their rural points of origin to national and world markets. Many conservative heads turned when then-President-elect Trump called for a trillion-dollar spending bill after Republicans had just rejected repeated calls for such a package from President Obama. That put Senator Barrasso, who is now chairman of the Public Works Committee, in a difficult spot because Democrats started calling for everything from investing in school modernization to high-speed rail. My job is keeping it focused on the issues, and specifically with this uh, committee. It's, it's highways, it's transportation, it's bridges, it's roadways, uh, also waterways. So that's a big part of it, and that's where the discussion is going right now. Progressive darling Bernie Sanders of Vermont sits on the committee and has a starkly different vision for infrastructure than Barrasso does. He's calling for the bill to also address the lack of broadband in many parts of rural America. We are the richest country in the history of the world. We used to, Mr. Chairman, lead the world in cutting-edge infrastructure. We were number one. That is no longer the case. We are now behind many, many other countries. And the result of that is the loss of productivity. The result of that is the loss of safety, too many accidents, occur because of a crumbling infrastructure, and the result of that is the loss of economic potential in jobs. Delaware Senator Tom Carper is the top Democrat on the Public Works Committee. He cites a study from the Global Institute that calls for infusing between 150 and 180 billion dollars in infrastructure annually. It will create some 1.8 million new jobs by 2020. For a lot of people that are frankly on the sidelines would like to go to work, need to go to work, and this would be a great place for them to go to work, working on these projects. But Barrasso is pushing against calls to lard up the bill with pet projects. He says his committee's makeup gives rural states a leg up in this year's infrastructure battle. Look at the makeup of our committee. You know, we have the senators from Nebraska, Iowa, Wyoming, Alaska. We are states where there are significant need, not for big projects, but for just the routine maintenance uh, for bridges, for roads, and also waterways as a part of this as well. The question for many conservatives is how do you pay for all this? Barrasso says that's not quite his job, but he says proposals for public-private partnerships, among other ideas, won't work out west. So we need to find a funding source, we need to make sure that it works, uh, but realistically the ideas of toll roads and things like that aren't practical in many of our rural states. The battle over whether to even do a big infrastructure bill is testing the unity of the GOP. Because the party's president wants it, but many rank-and-file lawmakers are wary of spending so much money. That puts Barrasso in an awkward spot. If he can bridge that divide, he'll win a lot of praise. But if he fails, your roads and bridges may continue to crumble on his watch. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington.
Forty-four of the University of Wyoming students come from seven different countries, included in President Donald Trump's travel suspension. The executive order is now in the midst of what will likely be a long legal battle. Until the situation gets resolved, University President Lori Nichols has discouraged the impacted students from traveling outside the U.S. As Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, if it sticks, many of the students are now left with limited options and hard choices. It's Friday just before noon at the University of Wyoming Union, and it's busy with students and faculty stopping by for lunch between classes. One group of students is collecting signatures. You want to sign a letter in support of international students? Awesome, thank you. They're asking people to sign a letter to President Nichols, asking her to continue her support. Following President Donald Trump's order, Nichols released a statement reaffirming the university's commitment to its international students and staff. Among the students is Ali Gazmazada. He's a PhD student from Iran studying transportation and highway engineering. He says he wants to teach once he graduates. My friends wanted to be a doctor or engineer. I'm an engineer right now, but I, I wanted to be the teacher at the end. It was the goal of my life. He says his parents planned to come to Laramie for his graduation, but under the ban, that would not be possible. Gazmazada says the ban could also impact his engagement. For example, my fiance, she is in Iran. She wanted to come here for continuing the study and being together, but it's not possible anymore. With all this emotional turmoil, Gazamzada says he hasn't been able to do the very thing he came to the U.S. to do, schoolwork. For me, I couldn't work for two, three days. I'm just in a Facebook, just refreshing, reading the new news. Another UW student from Iran says he's lost his motivation. He asked to not use his name because he's worried it could affect the status of his student visa. A few months ago, his father had open-heart surgery back home in Iran and is now very sick. He says he had plans to visit him over winter break. But uh, my program demanded me to stay here to do more research. When that happened, he changed his plans to visit this summer. If the order sticks, he says he's left with two choices. He can leave the U.S. to go see his father and risk not being able to return to his program, or he can continue his studies in Laramie and maybe never see his father again. Most international students that come to the U.S. for college arrive on an F-1 visa. It's valid for the entirety of their degree programs, and they can apply to stay for an additional three years after graduation to work in a job in their field. Jill Johnson is the Associate Director of Admissions for the International Students and Scholars Office at UW. She says applying for an F-1 is a very long vetting process, especially if the student is coming from Iran. There are always really long delays in getting our students from Iran here because they have to go through a pretty extensive background check, and this has been for years now. Johnson says the Monday after Trump's order, students came to her office for a meeting and they were very upset. She says they were concerned about the people they knew directly impacted by the ban, but they were also worried about being able to finish their degrees. Most of these students, if not all of them, are graduate students. And so um, a lot of research opportunities that might, not even opportunities, required research for their degree program are to happen outside of the U.S., whether they could leave and come back. Whether that would be a possibility for them to ever complete their degree here was really uh, in question. Back at UW's union, the students collect over 650 signatures. Ali Gazmazada says it is a small effort that may not have a major impact, but he's happy to see his peers come together. Actually, the good thing about this order is that people now, they are closer to each other. 
this is this is one advantage at least because people need each other's support. This is the only thing that we can do. With the courts putting the ban on hold, the students remain in a wait and see mode. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. As one of his first actions in office, President Trump signed an executive order granting his approval for the completion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Then on January 31st, the Army Corps of Engineers announced they'd grant the final permit. The next day, about 100 protesters clashed with Morton County Police. 23-year-old Northern Arapaho member Michael Lott from Wyoming was among them and told me the story of his arrest. That morning, a group of Water protectors went up to the hill that is directly across from the road at Standing Arch. And it was probably about noon. The Morton County Sheriff's Department said that we were trespassing on private property and they were going to give us two hours to remove everything from the hill. Um, At that point, there was probably about, I would say, close to 100 people up there. Uh, I was actually there with... uh, one of the elders here, and she decided that she wanted to be up there, that she needed to be up there. And I felt like I needed to protect her. There was probably, I want to say about 400 police there. And we all circled around and we interlocked arms. Um, They started picking us off one by one. Um, I had a gentleman who was on me from the Two-Spirit camp. They pulled him by his arm, but he was holding on with both arms on one by one arm. They started pulling, so they started pulling him by his legs to try to get him off me. And that's when they grabbed me like behind my neck and like pushed me onto the ground. And that that was kind of like when we were all zip tied, and there was there was about 70, 75, 76 of us that were taken that day. And, and what were you charged with? I was charged with engaging in a riot and trespassing. And so we were all being held on felonies uh, without bond. Were you in jail for a while? What what ended up happening yeah. in terms of how did you get out? We were shuttled to Mandan. We were put in um, cages and separated probably about 15 people in each um, cage. And we were told to strip it to our base layers and some people were wearing shorts. And what um, was the weather like? It was cold. And especially during the night, it was probably about zero. After they told us we were in those cages, they started separating us. And we were told that we were all going to separate facilities and that we weren't going to be able to stay at the same facility. I was one of the 13 who was uh, shuttled to Fargo. I was fortunately, actually, one of the last ones booked. So I got to get a hold of our legal help, the Water Protector Legal Collective. But unfortunately, after I was telling them about, about the conditions we were in and that, that we were being held without bond because they were saying that we were facing felonies, Cass County ended up blocking the legal defense number from everybody. Everyone tried to call so that we could get out faster. And every time you called, it said, this number has been restricted. So the, the the number itself had been blocked somehow? Yeah. 
to have you talked to uh, the legal counsel since then? Did they, from their end, they did they notice that as well? Yeah, they they noticed that as well because there was a individual who was in Warren County who was trying to call and it, it was blocked as well. Uh, it seems like they blocked him every in every jail that we were at because they noticed that we were all calling the same number. So since you were able to to get through, what happened then? We were in jail for three days. Well, the legal counsel ended up bailing everybody out. And you think 76 people times $500, that's a lot of money. And and where's that money coming from? Donations. The Water Protective Legal Collective has raised a lot of funds to help out with uh, the legal situation that's going on here. And and now I understand that the chairman Archambault is is encouraging people to to leave, and that he's concerned about the flooding in the spring. You know what what's your plan in terms of going forward? I really believe in this movement, and I wouldn't have stayed through winter, and I wouldn't have endured as much as I've endured if I didn't believe in this movement. It's really crazy because uh, the Standing Rocks Sioux Tribe just released something else saying that. They didn't say that we need to leave. They were saying we need to clean camp. So it's just, it, it changes every day. And we're living a completely different lifestyle than the regular American right now. I mean, we don't have running water. We see, you know, we, we're seeing intense. And I think a lot of people like it. I think that it's, I feel like I'm living like my ancestors. And my great, great, great grandfather was Chief Black Cole. And he was the last chief of the Northern Arapaho tribe. I, I feel like he would want me here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate right, it. And you. best of luck up there. Stay safe and warm. I'll, I'll try. Okay. okay. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. That was Northern Arapaho member Michael Lott in North Dakota, where he is currently protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline. When we come back, we'll hear about a new book that mentions Heart Mountain and speak with the curator of art and research at the National Museum of Wildlife Art. This is Open Spaces. You are enjoying Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. A new book compiles government photos of Japanese Americans in World War II incarceration camps, including Heart Mountain in Wyoming. For the first time, some of the people in the photos have been interviewed. Those interviews are included in Un-American, the Incarceration of Japanese Americans During World War II. As co-author Richard Cahan tells Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Jones, camp conditions were poor. People were taken and put into horse stalls temporarily. They were put into things that were like army barracks. They were hastily constructed and the wind blew in through holes. There were these little, quote, apartments, which sometimes were for 10 or 15 people, had one light bulb. The bathrooms had very little privacy. The camps were generally surrounded by barbed wires with, uh, as you'll see in the book, soldiers with guns, and they were literally put in deserts. The Heart Mountain camp was a very hostile place, not a place that people wanted to live. The photos in the book allude to the problems, but I, I think it's the personal narratives from people that really talk about how they felt. Why did the government want to photograph the camps at all? 
it was common among government agencies in the 1930s and early 1940s to photograph their work, to promote their work to Congress and to the American public. And I think there was also a feeling of the government wanted to show that Japanese Americans were treated in what the government perceived as a humane manner. The other reason is when the government takes over the photo documentation of something, then they can keep others out. Another photographer um, whose story I found really compelling was Carl... Carl Iwasaki. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about his story? He was a internee, somebody who was, uh, you know, one of the Japanese Americans who were taken and put into the internment camp. There were 10 of them. He was put in the internment camp in Hart Mountain, Wyoming. He was hired in around 1944 to work in the darkroom of the Government Photography Bureau, and he must have done such a good job. They gave him a camera, and he was only about 20, 22 years old. They wanted him to photograph the relocation efforts. During the war and after the war, people were allowed to leave camp and relocate in the Midwest and the East and after the war in California. And I agree with you. I think his pictures are, they don't look like promotional pictures. They are very intimate. He ended up having a long career working for Sports Illustrated and for Life magazine. In the book, there are mentioned a lot of people who were working for the government at the time or were somehow involved with making the decision to start the incarceration camps who later changed their mind and thought, oh, never mind, the incarceration camps were a bad idea. We shouldn't have done that. Did you did you ever come across anyone who didn't change their mind, who continued to think that it was a good idea? You know, I think we have to go back to the start of America's involvement in World War II. There were over 2,000 Americans killed in Pearl Harbor, and within days of Pearl Harbor, there were already blackout drills in San Francisco. And the West people who lived along the West Coast were really terrified of what might happen. So there was a sense that the 110,000 Japanese Americans that lived along the West Coast There was worry that there would be sabotage, that there would be espionage, that there would be other types of spying. The problem was there was absolutely no evidence of it. The president left the decision of what to do with Japanese Americans up to the U.S. Army. On the surface, that would seem to make sense because the Army was in charge of, you know, the security of the United States. But the problem was, was that the Army did not consider or care about the civil liberties of actual American citizens. And about 70,000 of these 110,000 people were U.S. citizens. And so they suggest that they be taken and put in camps. And uh, I think what this book shows more than anything else is what happens when, when fear eclipses civil liberties. That's author Richard Cahan speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Jones. His new book is Un-American, The Incarceration of Japanese Americans During World War II. Adam Duncan Harris is the curator of art and research at the National Museum of Wildlife Art and is a recipient of one of the 2017 Governor's Arts Awards. He sat down with Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard to talk about his approach to managing the collection and the award. He says he didn't get the news that he won quite in the way he expected. I think I was supposed to get a letter from the governor um, that, that announced this award um, somehow that got lost in the mail. And so the first I heard of it was I got a call from the Wyoming Arts Council and uh, just a nice you know, conversation with their director saying, hey, you've won this award. And I said, wow, that is amazing. <laughs> I was very, uh, very honored, very humbled. It was a big uh, surprise to me. 
part of your title is curator of art and research. So what kind of research do you do? We do research on all kinds of things. It's all, of course, limited to our our field, which is wildlife art. Recently, we've been doing much more with uh, looking at contemporary artists that are uh, incorporating wildlife imagery into their work. Um, But also, a lot of the artists that you think about in terms of Western art incorporated wildlife into a lot of their work. Uh, Wildlife was a part of this Western experience. But then you look at the, the broader scope of art history, European and American, there's animals and wildlife running throughout that entire span. Our specialty is sort of the 1800s, 1900s, and now. And that's, I feel like, when a lot of people think of wildlife art is probably what they think of, you know, the the buck on top of the mountain mm-hmm. with the light coming down. So what are contemporary artists doing that you're excited about? They are doing all kinds of amazing things. We've collected a really neat sculpture by an artist named Nicola Hicks. Um, and she created these these amazing sculptures out of mud and sticks And so it looks like the creatures she's made have sort of arisen out of primordial ooze. They're really engaging and a little bit dark and a little bit fairy tale-esque. And so that's in, you know, in pretty big contrast to the more naturalistic sculptures that we have great selection of. Um, A lot of people are, are pretty pointedly talking about how we're treating the environment, how we're treating nature, and how we're treating uh, endangered species. So there's a a political discourse in there that um, has really ramped up, I'd say, since the 70s and 80s. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the National Museum of Wildlife Art. Will you have any special events to mark the occasion? We will. We're going to have an opening of our reinstalled galleries. Our galleries, our permanent collection galleries have been largely the same for the last decade or so. So we're reinstalling all of those. Um, And we're going to have a party to celebrate that on May 16th, which is our official 30th anniversary. And we're also putting up a a neat show of, um, we have a portfolio done by Andy Warhol of his endangered species. And then later on in the summer, we're going to have a big fancy gala uh, in August that'll be more of a, you know, a fancy celebration of our 30th anniversary. As you head into the museum's third decade, what direction are you hoping to take it? So one of my uh, passions is our permanent collection. We have an amazing collection, and we've been able to do some really great projects with it. But there's still so much in there that we can work with and develop and research and write about and do exhibits with that I'm really excited to look inward, say, over the next five to seven years and generate exhibits that we can send out to other institutions um, and just try to communicate what an amazing collection we have, what an amazing amazing subject this is, and let people out there in the rest of the country see what we're doing. One of the biggest comments we get from visitors is when they come in for the first time, they say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. They're, They're always amazed at the the depth and the quantity of what they see. And I just want to share that with other people. Adam Duncan Harris is the Peterson Curator of Art and Research at the National Museum of Wildlife Art. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. We welcome your comments and suggestions concerning the program. You can submit those through our website. You can also use that site to listen to individual segments, past shows, or you can sign up for our podcast. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.